So I'm glad to see you came back. Never sure after what I said last week, you know. There's a guy here at the church that his strategy for managing all this growth at New Hope is to do one of those thin the pews messages every week. And, and you manage church growth by just ticking people off and, you know, and then you don't grow so fast. Not sure that's a good strategy. But <laughs> um, well, I'm glad, I'm glad that you're here. So I have a question for you. So how long did it take for that spiritual high to wear off from Easter? Was it, was it like Wednesday? Tuesday? Monday? Sunday afternoon? You know, it, it, it does um, reach a crescendo, this, the spiritual peak of Easter, and then I have this task this morning of reeling you back in again, okay? So where we're going this morning is uh, jumping back into John, and it, it's going to feel, I guarantee you, I promise you, it's going to feel more like a classroom this morning, okay? Because it's, it's uh, just that kind of a text. It's going to feel very studious. So I hope you have your writing hands and your, your notes so that you can keep track of all this. There's a lot of PowerPoint slides that are going to go up there referring to different verses to back up what we're looking at. I'm going to, before I jump into the text this morning with you, though, I'm going to um, pray with you. And we're going to ask God to be our teacher through His Holy Spirit. Would you do that with me? Father, I ask that You would um, take this time right now in which we've tried to center our thoughts on You through music, and You would take it one notch further. Step it up, Father, to the point where we're fully present in this moment to hear what You have to say to us. We've, We've sang to You what we wanted You to hear, what we wanted to declare, And now we ask that you would speak to us. And that can only happen through the working of your Holy Spirit, whom you said is our teacher and our guide and our comforter. So God, I ask that you would teach us. I ask for the capacity to see things that we might not see on our own. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been working through this series, we've come to see these brushstrokes of God. We've we've called this series The Portrait. Um, you guys should get, be getting a medal by now because we're 35 weeks into this study, uh, the book of John. Um, and through this series, the portrait, we see these brushstrokes of God appearing on the canvas in which Jesus is explaining him. Today, we're going to very clearly see that God wants the kingdom advanced, and he wants it advanced ferociously. And we're going to see that there's a danger in putting God in a box of trying to determine what the operating system is that God can operate within. And you're going to see some individuals here that think they've got God figured out, but they discover very quickly God doesn't operate the way they want Him to operate. So if you're going to join me in the text this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 12. You'll see it up on the screen, but you'll find Bibles in the pew racks there as well. John chapter 12 and verse 19, so that you can follow along. Here we go. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after Him. Why did I start there? Well, where we left off at last time was Palm Sunday. Uh, Jesus coming down into Jerusalem. He's riding on the back of the donkey. We discovered it was actually called Palm Monday when we met together a few weeks ago in the sequence of days. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Monday. Huge crowd around him. So the Pharisees are looking out the window of the temple and all they see are thousands of people surrounding Jesus and they get ticked off at each other. And they say, look, you're not doing any good. The world's going after him. It's ironic. Jesus is right there, and they can't touch him. 
because of the crowd around them. They can't do anything. They can't seize him. All they can do is look on with frustration. So what you're seeing there are some angry individuals. They really want to grab him. But this statement that they make, the world has gone after him, becomes prophetic, as you're going to see. Many times when individuals like the Pharisees spoke, God used their words for his good. And you're going to see some individuals whom would be considered part of the world. Greeks, what Scripture calls the Gentiles, people who are non-Jewish. They come and approach Philip and Andrew. And they ask if they can have some face time with Jesus. So they approach them and they just simply put the question out there. Very likely, the exact same thought is on the mind of Andrew and Philip and all the disciples that the world has gone after Jesus because they've been part of that celebration too. They've just seen Jesus come down the mountainside and everybody's celebrating him into Jerusalem. And just when you think God has been figured out by you and you've got the boundaries and you know what he's going to do, He expands beyond your thinking. And that's what you're going to see in this text. Verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Verse 21. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Now, most likely, these Greek individuals are converts to Judaism, people who were raised outside of the Israeli faith, the Jewish faith, and at some point, they decided, we're not going to follow this pagan ritual of all these gods. Romans worshipped many multiple gods. They apparently turned their back at some point in time and sought out the one true God, and they're coming to worship at the feast, according to the text. What's the feast? Passover. So you've got Greek individuals who are also coming to worship in Jerusalem at a Jewish Passover. And they wish to have a consultation with Jesus. Where is Jesus at this point in time? Well, if you read the Matthew account and the Mark account, you'll see that Jesus is in the temple. He's ridden down the mountainside. He goes into the temple and he cleans out the temple of all the merchants that are in there saying, my house will be a house of prayer. Chases all the money changers out. He did that once in the beginning of his ministry. And then he does this here four days before his death. He does it twice. And so these individuals, they apparently come to the temple. Now, Greek-speaking individuals, Gentiles, are not allowed to go into the temple where Jewish men and women go. There's the court of the Gentiles. That's all the further they can go at the cost of their life. They couldn't go beyond the no trespassing sign. And so apparently they find Philip, who happens to speak Greek. Because he's raised in Bethsaida. That's why John wanted us to know that. It's a Greek-speaking town. And they see him and they approach him and ask for some time with Jesus. So Philip apparently is unsure of these Gentiles. He's not sure what he's supposed to do. He's hesitant. So he comes to Andrew and says, what do I do? Andrew says, well, let's take him to Jesus. Well, we'll go ask Jesus for permission. Why are they hesitant? Because Jesus has said that he's there for the Jewish people first. And once the Jewish people reject him, then the gospel spreads to the entire world. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 15, 24. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why this detail? Why does John want us to know this little paragraph about some guys who have Greek descent in their background coming and asking for FaceTime with Jesus? So remember, John's in his 90s. And he's looking back over 70 years, writing about something that happened when he's in his 20s. 
There's a reason he specifically wants us to know this. On the heels of the Pharisees saying, look, the world is going after him. And then John, right in sequence, begins to speak about people from outside the world coming after Jesus. Now, there's no record that Jesus ever spoke to these individuals. But what we do know is Jesus is about to call his church out. He's about to institute the church through his death. And so through that, the whole world will begin to come after him. Go with me to verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. I'm just kind of curious, how many of you were raised in church? You uh, came up as a child. You grew up in church background. Okay, quite a few of you. So you have a church background. When you read passages like that and you were growing up as a kid and you know that these guys came and said, hey, uh, Jesus, these guys would like some face time with you. They want to have conversation. And Jesus launches into a verse like this. You say, what? I don't get it. I mean, they just asked a simple question. Jesus, can these guys talk with you? And he launches off into this. Is that not baffling? that he has that kind of a response to them? Well, let me explain this response to you so that you get why Jesus said that right on the heels of them asking for these Greek-speaking guys to talk to him. The arrival of these Gentiles, these Greeks, triggers something. And Jesus says it right in verse 23. The hour has come. Now, if you've read Matthew and you've read Mark and you've read Luke and you read John, you know that Jesus has never, ever said this before. This is the first time. Up until this point, he said, my hour has not come. The time has not arrived. But now he says, the hour has come. So this is really significant. Now, in the context of the triumphal entry, all those thousands of people coming down the hill with Jesus, if you just took verse 23 and you heard Jesus say, the hour has come, it's time for me to be glorified, no doubt the disciples are beginning to think, oh, finally, now he's going to kick Rome out of here. Now we're going to get our rightful place. The conquest is going to begin. But what he says next shatters any dreams that they might have of conquest. Jesus starts out in verse 24 by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. And you know when Jesus says that in Scripture, it means you can take it to the bank. It's solid. I stamp what I'm about to say. And he uses an agricultural illustration, which is really familiar to his audience. They live in an agrarian society. So he uses wheat for an illustration. If a grain of wheat dies and goes into the ground, it gets buried, it produces fruit. The point is, we understand now, looking back on the text, he's going to be glorified through death. He's like the kernel of wheat that's going to be buried in the ground. And when he's raised again, like the wheat, it's going to spring. It's going to bring, apart, bring about all kinds of fruit. So Jesus knew after the cross, the kingdom is going to spread to the entire world, all around the globe. So that's his response to the Greek request. The Greek individuals are saying, hey, can we meet with you? And Jesus' response is, what I'm about to do is going to point to the entire world, not just these Greek individuals coming and understanding who I am as a result of my death. 
So the Greek want to see him for conversation. Jesus knows the only way his presence can have any lasting significance for them is through his sacrifice. Now let's go to verse 25 because I want to break this down because Jesus says something that applies to you specifically. Verse 25, he's speaking to his disciples, meaning his followers, present in first century, and you, followers, present, 21st century. He says in verse 25, the one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life will keep it to life eternal. What you're seeing there is a God measurement, a God calculator. God is calculating those who really belong to him. So go to the first part of verse 25. The one who loves his life loses it. Who's he speaking to? This is a warning to his followers, to disciples. Remember, the disciples have just witnessed the victory dance. They've just seen Jesus come down the mountainside. Everybody's celebrating Jesus. They're caught up in the moment. The echoes of, Hoshana, Hoshana, are still ringing in their ears. They, they hear the crowd celebrating. But in four days, they're going to hear the crowd Crucify him! Crucify him! And Jesus is warning them. You're you're in the midst of a battle. If you want to love your life to the degree that you're going to protect it, you're going to lose it in relationship to eternity. So that's why he gives the converse next. He says in verse 25, the one who hates his life in this world, the one who hates his life is going to keep it to life eternal. So that's why I say this is a measurement by God. This, this one hates his life is an old, ancient Semitic expression. And it has the connotation of giving preference to one thing over another thing. So in context, what Jesus is stating here, it's, it's referring to preferring Jesus over your job, over your family, over your treasure, your finances, your career, everything, even to the degree, even over your own life. Now, we're not being told here that we're supposed to have contempt for ourselves. No one hates themselves. We're talking about hating your life in this world to the degree that you give up your life for the sake of the kingdom. Look what Jesus, he summed it up best. Verse 37 of Matthew chapter 10, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. I promise you, there are some in our church who encounter these issues every single week of your life. You might be a one who can identify with that. You have family members or friends or co-workers who stand absolutely opposed to the things of God. And they act in such a way that they contradict the things of Scripture. And frankly, they'd like you a whole lot better if you would just walk away from the things of Christ. If you would turn your back on it because you'd bring peace to their world and it will be a whole lot easier for them to get along with you. But you know that that would be contrary to the Word of God, God's ways, And so you have to put your stake in the ground and say, this is what I stand for. So every week there's individuals who live with this constant obstacle in their life. Let me say, God bless you. 
Because God honors that kind of conviction in which you stand for your convictions and you know what God has called you to. Here's the converse of that. Look what Jesus said in Luke 9. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It may very likely, because you live in the United States of America, it may not ever be required of you to have to give your life, physically give your life for the sake of the kingdom. You may never have to be martyred, but there are individuals around the world who are There are individuals living in other countries who know what it is to stand for Jesus in the face of opposition. Can you imagine being a Christian living in Iran right now? What the cost might be to your life? That's why Scripture says those who truly come, they have to love Him above all else. And that requires a daily spiritual inventory. I have to do it every day, and you do as well. That's why Paul wrote, I die daily because I've got my list of things I want to do, the things that I find valuable, the things I'm drawn to. But Paul said, I die daily so that the kingdom of Christ might be advanced. I set my wants aside. So Jesus says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So if anyone serves me, he must follow me. If you don't mind circling that word must in your Bible, if you've got your copy of your Bible with you, I would circle that word because that word must is not in the original text. As a matter of fact, they don't have the word must in the Greek language. It doesn't exist. The only word that is there is the word follow. And the word follow is akolotheo. And here's why they don't have the word must. Because follow, akolotheo, is an emphatic word in the Greek language. There's no need to put must in front of it. If someone's walking in the same path as Christ, they're expected to stay on the same road with him. You see the definition? To accompany, you're walking this journey with Jesus. You're on the same trail with him. You're a follower of Christ. You can't go the opposite direction. Many times it's this akolotheo is used of a marriage. A husband and wife walking down the same trail together. Focus of mind, same direction. So Jesus is saying, you've got to follow me if if you're going to be a true servant of mine. And as a result of following Jesus, he makes some promises to you. Let me show you those. They'll be up on the screen, but I think they're in your notes as well. Specifically, he makes two very specific promises. First of all, where I am, my servants are going to be also. And that's a promise of your eternal life in the future. Let me remind you of that. Up on the screen, John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So you're going to be where your master's at. That's his promise. That's your first promise. Your second promise. Anyone who serves Jesus, the Father will honor. And I guarantee you, all human praise pales in comparison to the honor of God Almighty. You've got the honor of God Almighty on your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And we're not just speaking of those who work in full-time ministry. We're talking about anyone. That's why Jesus said, anyone who serves me, they're the ones whom the Father will honor. God's promises are always true, church. Maybe you didn't hear me. God's promises are always true, right? Absolutely. So if God said it and God cannot lie... God honors you. 
You are exalted in God's eyes if you're a follower of Jesus and you serve him. Do you know that most of the original 11 disciples, and I say 11 because Judas turned his back, so not 12, but 11, most of the original 11 died a premature death because they were executed for the faith? Same guys who were hiding in the room the night that Jesus was crucified. Once the Holy Spirit shows up on the scene, they put the pieces together and they begin to realize, wow, this is going to cost us our life. James was sawn in two. Peter's crucified upside down along with his wife and daughters. You read the history of the disciples, you'll find that they did not die a pleasant death. They laid everything on the line. That's why Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he's going to acolotheo me. He's going to walk down the same trail. And it may not be the case for you here in the United States, but it does cost people that price around the world. Go with me to verse 27 and see Jesus' emotional reaction to all that he's been saying. Verse 27, my, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Your king's emotions are on display here. He's in turmoil. Death is central to God's plan. It's a pre-planned death. Here in the United States, it's common to have pre-planned funerals. People figure out all the details in advance. We don't pre-plan our death. God pre-planned Jesus' death, and he's in agony over the cruel, shameful death he's about to die and what's associated with it. Now, we're told in Hebrews 12, 2 of this, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There's another side to that. Yes, for the joy of serving God, he endured the cross, but there's another side to that issue as well. And the other side is this, the anticipation of carrying the shame of my sin, of your sin, became so burdensome to Jesus that he recoiled in revulsion from the implications of bearing our sin and the judgment and experiencing God's wrath. I don't know if you've ever thought about that in this context before. Look with me on the screen. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He bore our sins in his body. So this word troubled, when Jesus says, my soul hurts, what is that word? Troubled is the word terrasso. Here's the definition for it, to shake or to stir or agitate. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. It's associated with the agitator in your washing machine at home, the one that stirs the water and makes the clothes spin. Jesus' soul is agitated to the point of severe mental anguish. It's agitation. It's a very severe Greek word. Why? Because he's seized by the vision, the vision of understanding as an omniscient God. He knows what's ahead of him. The death on the cross and bearing our sin and we're getting some insight here into the internal trauma that Jesus felt as he walked this trail. The anguish is extreme. So that's why he says, my heart is troubled. Literally, the Greek language, this is the way they interpret it. My soul has been thrown into distress. That's what Jesus is feeling. 
So you understand Jesus did not go to the cross emotionally detached. He's fully present in the moment. He's not some actor in a drama. That's why that prayer in the garden is so fascinating to me. The night Jesus is arrested, he's in the garden of Gethsemane. The guards come up to take him. But just before that, what does Jesus say? Father, if there's some way this cup can pass from me, let it be. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will. Look with me on the screen, Hebrews 5, 7. He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. That's why he responds, verse 27 though, but for this purpose I came to this hour. That's why I'm here. He immediately answers his own question. I can't say, God, bail me out of this. Jesus, the Son of the living God, has looked death fully in the face and with complete knowledge of what would be done to him, he marches forward right to where the real battle begins. The battle of the mind is where it all starts. The mental determination to stay true to what you've been called to do, that no matter what, you know what you were called for. You know what you've been called to do. So in response to that, Jesus making all these statements, God speaks from heaven in response to what Jesus has just said. Look with me at verse 28. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. I want to say, whoa, that's the voice of God speaking here. It's unmistakable. The voice is genuine and it's audible. You're going to see in just a minute the crowd's response to that. It's a public acknowledgement of the relationship between Jesus and God the Father. Three times God the Father showed up in the course of Jesus' ministry on earth. First one, baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Second one, the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John join Jesus on the mountain. Two heavenly beings join Him on the mountain. God's response This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Third time, right here at the end of his life, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Speaking of the cross and the resurrection. So God's speaking specifically, we find out here, is done to encourage you. Jesus says next, this isn't done for me. This is done for you to encourage you. Go with me to verse 29. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. So the people who stood by, they're unable to grasp the significance of what's going on here. Some try and explain it away. Oh, it's, it's just a thunderstorm. It's just spring rains, but it's blue sky. It's the Middle East. It's April. Some are saying it's a natural phenomenon. Others at least recognize it as a voice. You see that in the text. Some say, I I hear a voice. I think it's angels speaking to him. You know, thunder has always been associated with the voice of God. In the Old Testament, look at it later today, Exodus 19, 19. You'll see God speaking to Moses. And it said the people heard his voice as the roll of thunder. Revelation 19, Revelation 20, Revelation chapter 8 says that when God speaks, His voice 
rolls out from the throne as thunder, peals of thunder. So we understand that when our God speaks to some individuals, sounds like thunder. The issue here is not that God is silent, but that fallen people are deaf. And that requires the Holy Spirit for us to hear when God is speaking. 1 Corinthians 2 says this, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. See, Jesus doesn't need to hear the voice of God. He hears the voice of God all the time. He knows when his prayer is answered. This is like the time when Lazarus was raised. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb and he said, God, we're not doing this for my sake. We're doing this for the sake of those who are watching so that they may be encouraged. So Jesus is saying, God did this for you in the midst of your trauma and your turmoil. This isn't something that I need. He knows when we need to be encouraged. And in this case, he knows you need to know that his impending death does not represent God's displeasure with him. What's about to happen is for God's glory. So even though what is about to happen looks like disaster, because the individuals in the first century who are following Jesus have Jesus in a box, they know his operating system, they've got the manual. They've got God figured out. We know how God's going to show up. He's going to show up and kick Rome out. But Jesus is saying, you're about to operate in a way, God, that you need to bring glory out of this. God's response is, I am going to bring glory out of this. So many times God's operating outside of the box in the way that we understand. God's going to get glory out of this. The kingdom is going to be advanced, and this is for you. So as a result of hearing God's voice, Jesus responds with this statement about judgment. Look with me at verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. I want to get into Satanology with you for just a minute as a result of this verse, but I need to set it up first just before we get there. How is the ruler of this world cast out? If you don't mind later today, look at Revelation chapter 12 the entire chapter, but especially verse 10. So just write that down in your notes. But Revelation chapter 12 says that the cross is the means of Satan's defeat. Lucifer, the prince of this world, is driven out as a result of the cross. So his power over people, Satan's power, sin and death is defeated. We're delivered out of his domain of spiritual darkness. So Jesus is looking forward And he's anticipating that in four days' time, victory is going to be delivered. You understand that? He's saying that before the cross. It's Monday. He's speaking of what's going to happen on Friday in advance of the crucifixion. He's saying there's going to be victory out of this. Look with me at the three significant victories. I think they're in your notes, but they're going to be up on the screen for sure. Jesus speaks of three very significant victories. First, His death is going to bring judgment against the world. And we're talking about the fallen world, the world of sin that's moved away from God. Number two, his death is going to bring judgment also on Satan. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Through his death, Jesus would render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So we know that Satan held the keys to death prior to this moment. And Jesus took them from him. 
So as a result of those first two promises, those two victories, the third one is that God's elect are drawn in. Because Satan is destroyed, the world is judged, and the elect of God are drawn into him. So we come back to this issue of the ruler of this world being cast out, Lucifer. How does that happen? Well, we know that it happens in stages according to the Bible. I'll explain that to you in just a minute, the word now that Jesus uses. But here's where I see it. You'll have it, I think, in your notes, and it'll be on the screen. The first stage in casting Satan out occurred at the cross, the victory over death and the victory over sin. The second stage is when he's cast out, comes during the time of the tribulation period, when he's cast from heaven to earth. And we're told that according to Revelation chapter 12. Do you know that right now, Lucifer, the fallen angel, has access to God the Father, and he accuses you night and day before God. That's what Scripture says. He's the accuser of the brethren. He comes before God, and he launches assaults at you. Don't ask me why he has permission to do that. I do not know. But he has access to God. You see that in Job chapter 1. He's accusing Job. So we understand, according to Revelation, that the second stage, when he's cast out from heaven, no longer will have access to God. He's cast to the earth. Happens halfway through the tribulation period. And he no longer will be able to accuse us. The third stage is when he's cast into the bottomless pit at the end of the tribulation period. And he's held there for a thousand years. And the fourth stage, we're told according to Revelation chapter 20, is when he's finally cast into the lake of fire, his final judgment. That's the fourth casting out. So when Jesus says in verse 31, now has the ruler of this world been cast out, it means a decisive action has been declared and the action will follow in sequence. That's what Jesus is speaking of. But the first victory is the victory over death and over sin. Verse 32 says this, And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. You notice, first of all, that Jesus is associating victory with his execution. That's your God. It's not a mournful thing. He's associating victory. As a result of me being lifted up on the cross, I'm going to draw you in. I'm going to explain that word draw in just a minute. When he says lifted up from the earth, that means Jesus knew precisely how he was going to die. You know that the Jews stoned people, right? That's how Jews killed people. Romans crucified people. Every time they've tried to kill Jesus up to this point, it's been with rocks. But Jesus is speaking of being crucified here. So he knows specifically he's going to be handed over to the Romans They're going to lift him up on a cross and he's going to be crucified in a Roman fashion. But as a result of that, he's going to draw all men to himself. And let me be very specific with you. The word all there does not mean all humanity. It means all who will respond to the invitation that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not what the universalists think. Universalist Unitarians teach that all means he died for the entire world, all humanity, and no one has to do anything else. That is not the truth of the Bible. The truth of the Bible is no man comes to the Father except through Jesus, and you have to receive the invitation. And as a result, he's going to draw all nations, all tongues, all clans to himself. So Jesus becomes the magnet. 
He is the magnet, and as a result of the crucifixion, it is the cause of the attraction to draw people to him. It's a love that passes all knowledge, church. That's why Scripture says, what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the love of Christ Jesus our Lord? You can't measure it. As a result of the crucifixion, he draws all nations, all tribes, and all tongues. Do you remember that in Revelation? Look with me up on the screen, Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So once he's crucified, the resurrection, he becomes the center of attraction, and it releases us from Satan's power. Millions of people released from the power of death. So this issue of I will draw, what is meant by that? What is meant by I will draw men to myself? In the Greek, the word is very striking. You remember after the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus is seen in many places. We're told by as many as 500 people at one time. He's seen walking around Israel. And very near the end of the 40 days before the ascension into heaven, we see Jesus on the shore of a beach and his disciples had decided to go fishing. And they're out fishing all night. They catch nothing. Jesus shows up on the beach and he calls out, hey, have you caught anything? They say, no, it's bad fishing. And Jesus says, throw the net on the other side. And when they do, Peter gets it. It's the Lord. He jumps into the water, swims to the shore. The guys have such a huge haul of fish They can't bring the net in. So Peter wades back out into the water and begins to drag the net in. You can read about that in John chapter 21 later today. This word drag is associated with Peter dragging the net in is the same word that's used here when Jesus says, I will draw. Let me show you the definition for it. Helkuo, draw, means putting forth of strength. So what we're hearing from Jesus is as a result of everything that's going to happen, the wheat being buried in the ground, it's going to spring forth and bring fruit that's going to spread to the entire world. If I'm lifted up on the cross, I'm going to help I'm going to drag men who are the elect of God to myself. How does that happen? Following the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, Jesus unleashed an invisible, invincible power called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit drawing men to God, mankind, the elect of God. And some of you had to be dragged harder than others. You understand that? I've talked to individuals who didn't come to Christ until they were in their 80s because they stiffed-armed God their entire life. And God had to really drag hard on them to draw them in. Some of you came much easier than that. It didn't have to take so much strength. So look at the response of the crowd because Philip and Andrew just showed up saying, hey, there's some Greek guys that want to talk to you. And Jesus goes off into this, everything that you've just seen. So the response of the crowd is confusion. Look with me. This is where we're ending today. Verse 34. The crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Translation, according to Kring, unacceptable, unacceptable. We will not accept what you're saying. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? 
They're not understanding what he's saying. They're understanding what he meant by being lifted up. They know what he meant by that, being lifted up on the cross. That's why they followed up by saying, we thought the Son of Man was supposed to remain forever. Because Scripture does say the King of Kings rules forever. They just misunderstood it. Why? They've got God in a box. They think they know his operating system. They assume he's coming to defeat the enemy. We're asking God to come and deliver us. Hoshana, bail us out of this situation. But God always shows up in bigger ways than we ever expect. We think he's focused just on this little issue here that they have. They're learning through Jesus. God's operating outside of the operating system. And that's hard for them to process. So this is their response. They begin mocking When they say, who is this son of man? The literal Greek interpretation for that is, what kind of a son of man is that? Why would we want to follow someone like that? That's not what we understand God's going to look like. So to borrow the title of our series, The Portrait, their portrait of God is flawed. They misunderstand who he is. Can't put the pieces together. And I find it extraordinarily strange that individuals who knew God's Word so well, and believe me, they did. They had the Old Testament. They spent night and day with it. People who knew God's Word so well totally missed God's operating system and couldn't understand it. At this point, Jesus does not attempt to explain what he just said. He merely moves on and he takes a very pragmatic approach. This is the last verse for this morning. Verse 35. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. See, he's speaking as though he hadn't even heard their complaint. He he knows they're not seeking the truth. They're not really looking to understand. So instead of answering directly, he gives them a warning. Remember, you have a little window here, a very narrow window of time. And for the Jewish people living in the first century, they only had four more days. And they're missing the light. They've got this great privilege in this short space of time. So Jesus is communicating a sense of urgency. You've got to do something with this information. And the sad part of the response here in verse 36, these things Jesus spoke and he went away. They didn't want to hear anymore. You know Jesus would have stayed and talked with them further if they had really been interested. The sad thing is, He departed, and this is the last time you ever see Jesus speak publicly. John chapter 12. From this point, it ends. Only time you see him from this point forward is when he shows up for the crucifixion. We're marching towards the cross only four days away, and it all becomes very private at that point. Why? They think they have the boundaries of God figured out. And I will tell you, I have done this myself. I think I've got it figured out how God is going to show up, how he's going to operate, how he's going to deliver, and then he shows up over here. I can be just as guilty of it in 2012 as what they were in the first century. 
And so it requires us, church, to really be self-evaluating, to do what Paul did. God, I'm going to have to just die daily to check my attitude. How are you going to show up? How are you going to work through this situation? That's what I challenge you to do as you take on this week. You face those obstacles in front of you. You face those individuals who may stand opposed to the things of God. You know what you were called for. You have to just be submissive to God and ask him, how are you going to work through this situation, Father? I'm going to ask God that he would seal this in our hearts right now. Would you bow with me and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are called together as a church, the ecclesia, those whom you see as holy in your eyes. You've set us apart for a very specific purpose. You've called us to praise you. We lift you up, Father, in praise through song. We lift you up in praise through our study of your word. So God, we ask that for the time that we've set aside in the midst of our week to learn more about your nature and your character and your ways, we ask that you would bring your blessing upon us for having spent time studying your word to know you better. And Father, I ask that you would translate that over to making us bold on your behalf. When those of us within our body encounter obstacles this week, Father, God, I ask that you would be strong in their midst. Encourage them to remember through the work of your Holy Spirit the things that we've learned this morning. Call it to mind for us, Father, that we would be determined to represent you no matter what. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.